although the melody of that song, the harmony, the arrangement, the music is wonderful, I wonder if those words are true for you. And I ask myself, are they true for me? Do you really love him more than anything? See, anything includes everything. What is it that gets your affection more than Jesus? And let me ask you, if there is something there, as you honestly look and reflect, can I ask you, can it really replace him? Can it really be there for him? I love that song as a reminder. I love that song as worship to him. But I love that song as a goal. Lord, I do desire to love you more than anything. Amen. Turn with me today. We are finishing up chapter 9. I love what we've been seeing. We're actually going to see the point um, to, um, or I would call, and I've heard call, um, the climax between chapters 5 and 9. It sits in these verses. And so Jesus, we know that as he, as he came now and as he was was ordained as it was the inauguration of his ministry at the baptism. And of course, he went through temptation. And then after temptation, he began his ministry and he began teaching and he began proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And then he began healing people of every kind of disease that they brought. The king was now being brought onto the scene and we would now hear, as I've been saying all along, about this authority that he has Here's the point. He says now that the king is here, he begins to demonstrate who he is, and he does it in his message, and he speaks about the kind of person that the kingdom um, would hold and would have, the kind of person who would represent the kingdom that was being proclaimed. He comes, and then he begins to demonstrate the power of the kingdom as the king begins to heal. Um, but then we see at the end of this, what he was doing was he was showing and demonstrating for them. And he was showing them how, this, how his ministry was going to unfold. And he would show how the kingdom would be brought about, how the kingdom was now dawning on this earth, although it wouldn't fully come yet. It is here, although not yet fully here. And the kingdom is coming and it's rising. And he is showing them all this. And it comes to this, it comes to this apex. And that apex now is they were trying to always catch a break because ministry was happening. And, and, and one of the things, if you read in Mark in this, a little bit different, but if you read in Mark, they had been ministering and they had been busy so much. And Jesus tells them, come and pull away. He says, come, come, come and refresh. And then when they get to the other side, they thought they were going to refresh. You thought you were going to be on vacation. You thought you were going to get that break. And you get to the other side and there's more ministry and you go... I didn't plan for this. But Jesus does something different. We're going to see that today. And he looks and he sees the people that were breaking their neck because they found out where he would be. And by now, his ministry is just about at its height. It is coming to the apex of his popularity. 
people know about him. I'm just going to say this right now. If you knew someone that could physically change your life, that could give you hope, that could heal you from any disease you have, that can teach you about a new way to live, if only you connected with them, you would break your neck too. And so these people were coming from all over the region and they get there. And now he has a message for his disciples, but he wants them to see something. And I'm going to title this today, The King's Commitment to the Mission. He begins to show them part of why. Yes, he came to destroy the works of the devil by dying on the cross and, 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 and raising from the dead. But he was showing his disciples what this was all going to be about and why he was calling them. Stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. The crowd is now gathering. The crowd is coming from all over. And Matthew summarizes Jesus' itinerary. Let's read together. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father, may as we hear your word, Lord, we, our hearts are enlightened, and our minds, O oh God, are just set. God, um, um, a fire, Lord, with our hearts that we would understand what you are saying and we would respond in fervency. Give us wisdom and open our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And we come here to this apex and we see that Jesus is now, you know, he is now in full stride in his ministry. And I want to see his commitment to the mission because he is showing his disciples their, what their commitment to the mission must be. And it is by no mistake that Matthew, as he puts this together, the next thing Matthew writes about, and we'll see that when we're together again, Matthew writes about is that after he is now calling for laborers, people that would mirror what he started to show in chapter 5 when he was talking about blessed are. Those are the kind of people that will occupy the kingdom, but now he's calling those kingdom dwellers, those people in the kingdom to become laborers. And as he's calling them out, he has already given the kind of person. Now he's going to give what that kind of person does after he has demonstrated it over these four chapters. And so the first thing Jesus does is Jesus continues the mission he had from the beginning. Turn with me to Matthew 4.23 just for a second. Keep your finger on Matthew chapter 9. Turn with me to Matthew 4.23 when Jesus was beginning his ministry. Um, it, is, it is interesting that the words are almost exact that Matthew gives as Jesus begins to minister and as he comes out and as he begins his ministry, he says, verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus is doing the same thing that he had done from the beginning. His popularity hadn't changed him. His, his, his renown hasn't caused him to do something different. He wasn't trying to get the crowd. What was his mission from the beginning was his mission when it was at its height. Sometimes for you and I, when God gives us a little success, things start to change. We start to switch the mission a little. We start to cater it so that we can get more people under our belt. We start to go and act differently because now we got a little renown. And so uh, church starts to look different and, and, and people start to act funny and, 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 and leaders start to get entourages. And, and, and all of a sudden, before you know it, you got a celebrity on your hand. What you see in Jesus at the beginning is who you still see now that he's extremely popular. It said he went through all the cities and towns. In this particular one, it said Galilee in general. Matthew says now he's going in all the cities and towns, all the villages that were around. He was hitting them all because he was proclaiming. He was, first of all, what I like when he was doing, number one is that he was feeding them. He was teaching them, number one. I know we like to flip that. Jesus went and he had a great healing ministry. No, Jesus had a teaching ministry, actually, because he was teaching people about God. The first thing you see in Matthew 4 and the first thing you see now in Matthew 9 is that he's still teaching. As a matter of fact, when he started off chapter 5, he said when he saw the crowds... He walked up to the mountain, sat down, and began to teach. And it said, and his disciples came to him. Why? Those that wanted to learn, those that wanted to follow, those that were going to be loyal to Christ came to hear what he had to instruct them. I thank God for healing. And we pray that God continues to do that in your life. But if all that characterizes your Christianity is a healing ministry, you've missed the main part. Because he says here that Jesus taught them. He taught them what? Taught them about the kingdom because they didn't know about it. Taught them about what God expects. Taught them about what he was going to do. Taught them about what life could be like if they would follow him. He taught them how to live. And then he showed them how to live. And so he went about and he taught. But then what he taught was bringing good news. They said that he went about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. I love that. We still haven't gotten to all the miraculous healings yet. He went about proclaiming the good news that the kingdom has arrived. Let me tell you something. The best news that you can have, even though I love it, the best news that you can have isn't that a person is going to be made well, although they may think at the moment that that is their best news. But let me help you out. You may, you know, God may heal me from a sickness and I live for 40 more years and I die and I don't have Jesus. So what just happened? See, the issue is the greatest miracle for you and I isn't our physical healing. Although I thank God for it, I don't deny it. God still heals. And I look forward and I thank him that he has done it in my life. But the greatest miracle in your life and my life is our salvation, that Jesus miraculously came and changed it eternally for us. And so that even if I don't get better the way I thought I would, when I close my eyes in death, even if I lived 150 years, I'm going to live the next 3 billion, just getting started, 
in eternity with him. See, the issue is the greatest miracle is that God saved you and I, if you know him. Because eternity is set. And whatever happens on earth, you are looking forward to the future and enjoying the relationship in the present. Jesus continues his ministry as he always has. It doesn't change. But then also for those who just like to camp out on the first two things that he taught and he proclaimed, you know, you just need to teach the Bible. No, Jesus cared about the physical needs of people. And it says that he healed every disease that was brought to him and other every kind. Jesus cares about the needs of humanity, the physical needs. Let's not super spiritualize it all the time. Well, you know, he wasn't talking about that physical stuff. You just need to trust the Lord. No, look, God, can you please heal me? It'll be like the blind man, son of David, have mercy on us. They weren't talking about healing their spiritual blindness, although that's, that's part of what Jesus was leading to. They wanted to see. When Jairus came and said, my daughter is dying, he wasn't talking about spiritual death. Oh, Lord, come in. No, and she's dying. Can you come and do something for her? But he, they didn't realize Jesus had more in mind but they had some needs and God is raising up believers who will see physical needs of people and stop overlooking their physical needs as they try and meet spiritual ones. God says you can walk and chew gum. You can meet both physical and spiritual needs. And there's nothing wrong with you meeting physical needs. Oh, y'all need to be careful now. You're going to get into that social God. Meet the physical needs because Jesus did. And don't be afraid to have your gospel watered down. Jesus wasn't. He continued to heal, but he continued to teach. He continued to heal, but he continued to proclaim the gospel. We can do all three. Actually, the healing, we're not doing any of it. He's doing it at his will. But, 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 but we can proclaim a God that does heal. But that's not the apex of the message. We proclaim a God that came to give you life, that came to bring purpose and meaning that when and if he does heal you, you actually have a purpose for living now beyond your healing. And so he comes up and says, Jesus keeps the mission the same. But then the next thing he does, it says, Jesus sees the crowds the way they are. And responds according to the mission. See, the first one was Jesus continues the mission he had from the beginning. Second point is Jesus sees the crowd the way they are and responds according to the mission. See, that word seeing is not like you and I just kind of glance, hey, I saw so-and-so yesterday as I was walking down the street. That's not a, your eyes picked up, you know, the sensory picked up and, 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 the, and, and it came back, hit the back of your eye, and then you saw an image. No, that's not the word seeing. That word actually means discerning, and to stare, to look with intent. When it says Jesus saw the crowds, it's the same thing in Matthew chapter 5 before he gave what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He looked out and he saw he discerned that this crowd needed what he was about to give them. 
And Jesus looks out and he sees the crowds. And in Scripture, especially in Matthew, when Matthew uses the term the crowds, he is usually talking about that unbelief. It is that huge group that is mixed in with maybe believing and unbelieving, predominantly unbelieving. And people that have not trusted them and people that are there because they're a little curious and people that are there just to see what's going on. That's the crowds. When you see that mention, when you see Matthew talk about the crowds, think of that group. It would be just like us walking out here and you go to the mall and you see the crowds. You don't know what they're about. You see a mixed group of people, the crowds. When you go to a football game and you go in the stadium, you stand around, you see the crowd. And Jesus stood up, but when he looked at the crowd, he saw the crowd. He discerned what the crowd needed. And he looked beyond what they were doing. He looked beyond how they were dressed or how they weren't dressed. He looked beyond some of the things that they were doing or what they weren't doing. Jesus, when he looks and when he sees, he sees right to the heart of the matter. And as you and I trust in him more and more, he will help us to see beyond the externals. Because what he saw, you probably couldn't recognize just from you and I looking. You, you, you looking at me with a jacket on, you have no idea what's happened inside my life. Me looking at you with your dress on and, or, or with your nice clothes or with your casual clothes, I have no idea what's happening in your life and in your mind. But when Jesus looks, he looks right to the intent and he sees your heart. He sees your struggles. He sees what's happening and he responds based on what he sees. So you and I get caught up with the exterior. Oh, brother, man, you, you got that jacket on today. Yeah, yeah, you have no idea what's happening. Man, you, 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 you got that nice car, man. You got that nice car. You have no idea what's happening. Man, you just graduated. Got that great education, boy. You must be, you must be riding high. You have no idea what's happening. You got that dream job. You are doing it. Or you are now in your retirement. You are enjoying it. Man, it must be nice. And... Jesus goes, you have no idea because you don't see like I see. And please, for us too, that helps us, don't put on a mask in front of the Lord. He sees it. He knows who you are. You know, I, I, I'm going to get all cool and, and got a few success stories under my belt. Now I'm going to come to God like he don't know me. And he's looking right through me. And you know what? And he still loves you. Because he says here, look what happens. They are now, he says he, he, he sees the crowd when he sees them. For most of us, because the crowds kept coming around and he was probably tired. The story would read like this if I saw the crowd. When I saw the crowd, I got annoyed. Be like, y'all, give me a break. I'm like, I'm trying to find a rest spot. I go all the way over to this quiet place. That's like you finding your favorite quiet place and you get there. There's a group there having a party. And you're like, man. You go to your favorite, have my favorite prayer place. And I go there and they're having a group retreat. You know, my, 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 my lips are going to be turned. I'm going to have to pray to the Lord to get my attitude right. I wasn't expecting all these people to be. When Jesus saw the crowds and he had pulled away. But when he saw, as he ministered, as he went about, <clears throat> he sees, and his first response is compassion. 
And we understand that word compassionate. That word compassion really speaks about you having this, almost this, this, this heartfelt pity, this heartfelt response to their plight, usually their suffering, usually what's happening in their life. You see it, you feel it, you try not to ignore it, you know. Growing up in the city, for me, growing up in a city where you saw homelessness and where you saw brokenness magnified all the time, that's in New York, growing up, there many times I didn't want to see anything because it hurt too much. Because for me, I felt like I couldn't do anything about it. And I remember that you, no matter where you walked, you saw homelessness. It, 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 it was all the time. And there were times I would just, I was like, Lord, I'm tired. I just, because your heart hurt and you would come out and you come out the subway and then you go to get something for breakfast and you, you walk into your office and you go, it was just every corner or it was something that was showing the brokenness of our humanity. And I was just like, I'm tired of it. And then I just got to the point where I would just, I would almost just look straight. I wouldn't look at anyone. I don't want to see anyone. And I remember when the Lord started dealing with my heart, and he said, he said, boy, that's not how, that's not why I saved you. That's not how I saved you. He said, you can't ignore people. And I would say, Lord, but it hurts so much. Yes, but I've saved you so much. I've brought healing in your life. But Lord, I, I don't, I don't want to feel like that. God says, I understand. But I've come into you so that you can express to other people what I've done for you. And so the issue becomes, yeah, I know you see hurt. I know you do. But God says, look at it through my eyes. He says he has compassion. Why did he have compassion? He, 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 he saw and he responded. He wasn't swayed by what they were doing. See, you and I, sometimes we have the deserved needy. If they look like they're needy, if they look like they're, you know, they're, they're the deserved poor, they're doing all the things in my mind that the poor should be doing, you know, and, 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 and they are living the way in my mind that all the poor should be living or those that need help. And so if I think that this poor person should be totally destitute and they're sitting on their cell phone, I don't feel for them because I'm going, well, if they're poor, why they got a cell phone? Jesus looked, and he didn't see what they were doing. He looked right through, and he saw their need. And when we look with the eyes of Jesus, we don't, we don't get caught up in what people are doing. Well, why are they wearing that? Why are hair done if she's so broke? I'm like, boy, we, we have, and I've heard this term. I didn't, I didn't coin the phrase. We have what we call the deserved poor. We, well, you look like you should need some help, so I'm going to have passion on you. And God goes, no, when you see with my eyes, you'll start to see people's life. And boy, I love it. He said he had compassion. Why was his first response compassion? And it was his love and this care because he saw what was happening. He said, here's what he saw. He saw, verse 36, here. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because... 
they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, it didn't say they looked like it. He said they, they, they were. Well, how did Jesus knew they were by the way they were living, by the way they were making decisions, by the way they were allowing their life to be characterized by that which didn't honor God. He looked and he saw in them. He didn't get mad because they were living as sinners. I want to ask the question for us as believers. Why do we get mad at those that don't know Christ, that the Bible calls sinners? Why do we get mad that sinners are sinning? See, it, it, it got over my eyes. We're angry at them. So we're angry at the homosexual. Why? So we're, we're, we're angry at the, at the fornicator. We're angry at the liar, at the tax evader. We're, 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 we're angry at sinners. Why? Are they they're actually living out who they are? But he said, look at what Jesus, Jesus didn't get angry at. The, who did Jesus get angry at? Man, think about this for a second. Jesus got angry with the ones that said they knew God, but were living like they didn't. So I think you and I are the ones that need to be careful that Jesus may be angry at. Not the sinner. We go out there, God hates sin. And <laughs> that sign should have said, God is probably angry at me because I'm not living as I'm proclaiming. And boy, he comes up and he says he had compassion because they were, and, and, and the ESV gets one of those words is good. The other one doesn't give us the best rendition. So it says that they were harassed. They were vexed. They were troubled. It was as if someone was not just annoying them, that they were getting under their skin intentionally and they were trying to ruddle, I mean, I mean, they were trying to ruin their life. When it says that they were harassed, they were being bothered and couldn't do anything about it. And they didn't even know it. They wouldn't have, you would have walked up to one of those people and said, hey man, are you harassed? No, I'm not harassed. I'm actually enjoying life the way I have it. Jesus says you're harassed. Well, he's wrong. No, he's not. Jesus looks right into your life and says, you're harassed. You're being bothered. You're agitated. Why? Because you, you have this sin that you've not dealt with, this sin problem. And thus, everything in your life is unsatisfactory. Nothing really, nothing really satisfies you. Yeah, you, you, you finally got that dream job, but it just doesn't. I need just a little bit more. I need something else. You got that dream house. Yes, yeah, nice, but I, 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 need, I need just something else. You're making more than what you ever thought you'd make. Yeah, but, but, but I need something else. You're harassed. Why? Because Jesus is not in the mix. He is not in the middle. You don't know him. He says, you don't have me, so you're harassed. But he says that they are harassed. And then ESV says helpless. And ESV, I think, says downcast, which is a better word. They were thrown to the side. The whole imagery there is of, remember, because they're like sheep. He likened them to sheep. It is like a predator that comes in and is threatening the life of the sheep, grabs one and throws it to the ground, and the sheep knows there's nothing that it can do. Let me ask you, what defense mechanism does a sheep have? I like that God uses. Think about that for a second. See, when, when, when he talks about a ram, a ram has got a defense. It's the big old horns wrapped around his head and a really thick skull that he hits you. He can knock, he can knock a cow out hitting it. Because he's got a thicker skull, his defense. What does the porcupine have? He's got those little prickly things all over his skin. You get too close, you got to work through those. Uh, what does the skunk have? Get close enough, you'll find out. 
You think about it. What does the lion have? Has his teeth and his great paws. What does the sheep have? Any defense mechanism you can think of? See, sheep huddle up, hoping that if they're in a big group, it would make it hard for them to grab one. They have no defense mechanism. Zero. They are totally susceptible to predators, except for a shepherd. Except for a shepherd. He said they were harassed and helpless. Why? Well, then get up. Why don't you just get up? Because they're not rams. Why don't you just get up? Because they're not skunks. Because they're not porcupines. Because they're not falcons. They're sheep. And he says they're like sheep. Why? They're harassed and, they, and they, they've been thrown down and they are in danger of being eaten. Why? Because there is no shepherd. Part of that is likening it to the children of Israel because that's how God has referred to them in the Old Testament, that they were like sheep without a shepherd because their shepherds, those that were supposed to be leading them, Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those, weren't leading them well at all. And so in Ezekiel, God tells them, I'm going to take back my flock from you false sheep. And he says that today to us as pastors and leaders, keep playing. I'm going to take back my flock from you. You think I'm going to let you go all day and just ravage my sheep? He said, dude, I'll deal with you. They're mine. Now I remember that all the time. Y'all don't belong to me any more than that pole belongs to me. The issue becomes you belong to God, and so do I. And so he comes and he says they're, they're, they're harassed. And they're downcast like sheep without a shepherd. The other thing that sheep need a shepherd for is to actually survive to eat. So they, don't, they need them for protection so that they keep all the predators away. But sheep don't know how. I read up on this. They don't know how to find green pastures on their own. They don't know where to find good grazing spots. That's why in Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm, he says, he lead me beside still what he leads me to green pastures. Why? Because that's what shepherds do. Because sheep aren't going to find it on their own. And so in essence, here's what's happening with sheep. I had to write this down. Sheep without a shepherd, and this was from... Um, the gospel according to Matthew commentary, I like actually what he wrote. He said, sheep without a shepherd points to people who are in great danger and without their resources to escape from it. He said again, sheep without a shepherd points to people who are in great danger and without the resources to escape from it. And so he looked at this crowd and all he saw was lost, harassed, ready to be eaten ready to be devoured people, and he has compassion on them. He's not angry with the world. He says, I came to save the world. He says, it's when people reject him at the end. Yes, you will bear God's wrath, but why did Jesus come? He didn't come to be mad at us. He came to rescue us. And while we are busy being mad at the sinner, God says you should have compassion for them. Why? Because they are lost and they need to be rescued, even if they don't think so. You know so. And thus, that's how we live in Christ. And so after seeing all that, I like to after seeing all that, and they were like sheep without a shepherd, then he says, I like that. After that, he says to his disciples, see, he had been demonstrating who he is, what he does, and what he sees all along to them. And the disciples were there. He hadn't mentioned his disciples 
all the way back. The last time the disciples are mentioned is in Mark chapter 9, I'm not Mark, Matthew chapter 9, verse 19 is the last time the disciples were mentioned. And so now, there are several times later, he now turns to his disciples after he's looking around and they're probably seeing him looking. He says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I like this, which is my third and last point. Jesus speaks to his disciples from what he sees. Jesus speaks to his disciples from what he sees. He speaks to you and I from what he looks out and sees. And so he turns to them and he directs their, he directs their attention to the harvest, as he calls it, or to the people that he's looking at. He probably points out and says, the harvest is plentiful. He says, but we need more laborers. He didn't say we need more volunteers. He didn't say we need more servers. He used the word laborers, people that would put themselves in a position to work to exhaustion. Because that word to labor meant that. The other word that would come along that is, is, is actually toil, is that he is calling for people who are going to toil, who are going to work. This is not for the faint of heart. It's not for those that are looking for an easy way out. It's not for those that are looking for status. They don't want to work. They just want to show up and look good. Um, um, he said, it's not for any of those. As a matter of fact, he gave some of the definition of the person that would be called. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. It's the blessed are group. And when he says blessed are and he goes on down the line, those are the qualifications for the laborers that he's calling. Remember how Jesus was setting out the characteristics of the kingdom representative. Now he's calling on them. And how is he calling? He says, there's a harvest out there. He, he, he said, he didn't say go plant. He says, there's a harvest. Okay, so last time we checked when it was harvest time, it was time for you to go pick the grown crops. Harvest time. Now, corn is about ready, you know, and you know, see all of it harvested. My, my parents grew up in the Carolinas, and in North Carolina, it was tobacco country at that time. And so they would go and they would harvest or they would crop the tobacco. And when they did, then they had all these different things to do with it. But the first thing you did, if your job was to get the tobacco off the stalks, you were out in the fields cropping. And my brothers were the ones, they made lots of good uh, school clothes money out there in the tobacco fields and 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 they would they would crop and then they would bring them in and I would help because I was still a little kid I would help the tie it onto the long sticks and after they got them on the long sticks then they would hang them in the barns so they would dry them out now I know they don't do that a whole lot anymore because smoking has become this industry that we're trying to get you know on the on the down on the downside we're not trying to upswing but when it was in his upswing that whole deal of harvesting was understood and all of you who grew up in areas where you got, you know when it was harvest time. And Jesus is telling them it's harvest time now. Why? Look. That's what he says. Look. Look out. He says, pick your head up. <laughs> Get off your phone. <laughs> See something. You know, stick your head out the window or something. He says, look. He says, See what I see. There's a harvest out there, 
but we don't have laborers. And then this is what I like. Jesus now speaks to his disciples from what he sees. He, he, he directs them to the harvest. He directs them to the quantity. There's a whole lot. Stop fighting over the few in this corner. There's a lot. Churches. Well, they over here in our territory. There's a lot. Is what God is saying. Whole lot of harvest out there. But then number three, he directs them to the need for the harvest. What's the need? Laborers. But then he directs them to the right action. See, because some of us, we would think, hold on a second. Why would you? Jesus would go here first. He said, so. so he said, in, in essence, since it is, pray to the Lord of the harvest. What is the first thing he tells them to do? He says, pray. Pray to who? The one who owns the harvest. I love this. It's God's harvest, not yours and I. He said, it's not yours and mine. He says, it's his, because he's the one that has got this crop ready to where they need to be brought in. It's God's. It's, you, you didn't get that person's heart ready for the Lord. He did. You're only coming along either to crop or you've watered or you've planted, but that crop belongs to the Lord. And so he gets out there and he tells you and I, it's ready. Just go out and get it. Where we lived before our last place, before we moved back, I know my kids from this, they'll probably never own an apple tree. We had nine apple trees in our backyard. I mean, nine very productive, fruitful apple trees, some beautiful red apples and the brown baking kind of apples. So we had about three trees that were full of apples that were brown that you baked with, and then the other six were those that you would pick and eat with. And harvest time came. We were warned, the person, because we were um, subleasing the place, and the, and the person who, who had it before said, I'm, I'm just going to warn you. When that harvest comes, you are going to need to get some help. That's what they told us. We were like, we got five people here. They said, no, no, no. You are going to need to get some help. You won't be able to handle it. And I was like, okay, we're about to take advantage of all these apples. <laughs> we were getting greedy. And so, and, and so we looked up, and, and sure enough, they started red, red. But then we come out, and there were tons on the ground because we weren't fast enough to get them before they fell off. And if they fell off and they hit the ground and, and they were there for at least half a day, the worms in the ground were like, thank you. And they started going all through them and eating them. And so we got to the point, we'd have the kids outside and they would hate it. We'd be like, I'm never having apple trees. And we, we're picking up all these apples and we're trying to get it. And then we realized even after we picked them, we couldn't eat them fast enough. Because, and so finally I broke down and I listened to my warning. Call up some friends, hey man, can y'all come over? Look, we got free apples over here. Y'all just, just, just come. And one enough, we started getting word out in the community. One finally, someone said, hey, I, I told my friend and I told, good, get them all over here. We had people that were, we didn't even, we, we told them, we didn't even need to be back home because you could go around the back. I said, just bring your ladder because you had to climb up into the trees and get them. They would pick them and come up with baskets full. And I was like, thank you. And they were, but the harvest was plentiful. And the laborers were really few. I didn't buy apples for months. But boy, I learned a big lesson. We had to call on people. But God says, I don't want you calling on people. God says, I want you calling on me. Why? Because what that's going to do, it's going to humble your, your heart and my heart. It's going to humble our heart that we come to the Lord and say, God, hey, God, we need help. God, we see what you see. We're starting to see it. The laborers are, they're few. The harvest is out there. Lord, now we see it. Oh, and he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers to, I love this, 
his harvest. God says, you aren't responsible for any of this but to pray. And then after you pray, I'm going to put you to work. Because we're going to see next time that in chapter 10, if you want to read ahead, what he actually talks about are actual laborers that he actually calls out. And so Jesus tells them, call to the one who owns the harvest and get him to get others involved. We don't have enough people involved in learning. God says, look, go on your knees in prayer. We have a prayer celebration coming up. One of the things we're going to be praying for at this prayer celebration are laborers. God, we need more people to help out here in Pike. Tasia needs more people with young life. Mike, I mean with wildlife. Mike needs more people with young life. We need more people for the clinic. We need more people to proclaim the gospel as we minister to Bloom, as we go across the street to Guyan Creek. We need laborers. Where's, you know what? We realize we can't browbeat the laborers who are already laboring. God says, come to me. I know how to work on the hearts of new laborers. I know how to bring people in, and I know how to send them out. Guess what? Because when he does, you and I don't get credit. Well, you know, I called her and got her involved, and so ain't she a super volunteer? God says, no, talk to me. I'll work on her heart. She'll come to you, and you realize you had nothing to do with it. The issue becomes, he says, that harvest is plentiful. We don't have enough people. So God says, so ask me. You say, well, God, why do I need to ask you if you know that we need it? He said, because you need to know that you need it and that I'm your answer. And when you lay before him and you say, God, bring them out, you are realizing you are fully dependent on God to accomplish the mission. See, the, the king is committed to the mission. And now he is getting his disciples to be committed to the mission as well. They've watched for a while. Now he's calling them to work. And for some of us today, you've watched for a while. God is calling you to work. And he says, what are you going to do? See, I'm praying that God deals with you. And so, see, you would want me to badger you because, you know, you could always shut me out, turn off your phone, shut your door. You know, don't answer that dude. It's just annoying. But when God decides, where can you go to get away from the Lord speaking to you and dealing with you? Asking the Psalms, ask the psalmist about that. Where could I go? Go to the highest heaven. I go to the lowest depths. He's, I couldn't go anywhere. You're there. And God says to you and I, what you going to do? Are you just going to stand by? Or are you going to look and see what I see? And when you see what I see, you're going to do what I do. The king is committed to the harvest. Are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Lord, that...